Well, in, in journalism, there's an expression that you've probably heard, and it's this, is don't bury the lead. Um, basically, it means when you're writing a story, you write the most important thing first. The first line of the story is not going to be dealing with some secondary incidental point. It's going to capture the attention. It's going to give, in summary form, the main idea, uh, uh, the lead of the story. So don't bury the lead. Well, an illustration of this, and I've used this before, but I, I was thinking of it and its relevance to this passage. But Nora Ephron um, was a prolific writer. She was an author, a novelist, a, a screenwriter, a journalist, a producer, director. She has just worked in all, all kinds of writing. She died of leukemia a few years ago. But the ladies in this room, if, even if you don't know her name, you know her work because she wrote many uh, hit Romantic comedies that you've probably seen. Sleepless in Seattle, You've Got Mail, Julia and Julia. She's either written them or directed and produced them. Uh, but in an article, it was written about her explaining the, the influences in her life, things that really shaped her in directing her, particularly as a writer. The story is told about an assignment that she had in a high school journalism class. And it was one that had a huge impact on her life and really kind of set her on the course of, of pursuing a career in, in writing. And so this is, I'm going to read part of this article here. It says, Ephron's teacher announced the first assi- assignment. The students would write the lead of a newspaper story. The teacher reeled off the facts. Kenneth L. Peters, the principal of Beverly Hills High School, announced today that the entire high school faculty will travel to Sacramento next Thursday for a colloquium on new teaching methods. Among the speakers will be anthropologist Margaret Mead, college president Dr. Dr. Robert Maynard Hutchins, and California Governor Edmund Pat Brown. The budding journalists sat at their typewriters and pecked away at the first lead of their careers. According to Ephron, she and most of the other students produced leads that reordered the facts and condensed them down into a single sentence. Governor Pat Brown, Margaret Mead, and Robert Maynard Hutchins will address the Beverly Hills High School faculty Thursday in Sacramento, blah, blah, blah. The teacher collected the leads and scanned them rapidly. Then he laid them aside and paused for a moment. Finally, he said, the lead to the story is, there will be no class next Thursday. (laughs) It was a breathtaking moment, Ephron recalls. In that instant, I realized that journalism was not about, not just about regurgitating the facts, but about figuring out the point. I was thinking again about this story, and when I read the account of Jesus healing of the paralytic, and as I've been working in this this week in John chapter 5, and, and, and the response of the Jewish leaders to this story. That there's this invalid, this man who, who can't walk, who can't do anything for himself. He doesn't have the strength. He's, he's been completely incapacitated for 38 years. And instantly, he's cured of this disease and he's able to stand up and roll up his mat and walk away and and the lead that lead is buried by the pharisees under this headline something like this man breaks the sabbath after his encounter with jesus it's bearing the lead They completely miss the most important thing they completely miss god at work right in front of their eyes 
And they focus on this incidental detail instead. Well, John 5, we're, we've been in John now for several months. And, uh, but, but as we get to John chapter 5, verse 1, there's a turning point in the narrative of John. Uh, up to this point, it's been a generally favorable response to Jesus as he's ministered and taught and worked miracles. But the skies... The blue skies begin to darken off in the the west here. And you see the storm clouds starting to grow here in John 5. And the winds begin to to change. Storms are coming. And so far, again, it's been pretty favorable towards Jesus. At least least some have just been curious and some have been kind of um, unimpressed, but not antagonistic toward Christ. But that's going to start changing in this chapter. And, and, and the, the opposition is going to keep building and building and will not stop building until there are nails uh, pounded into the wrist and to the feet of Jesus. This morning we see the Jews beginning to bring this opposition against Christ. And you see that phrase, the, the Jews, uh, a couple of times in this section. Now, the Jews is not a reference to every single Jewish person. That's not the point. As we'll see, and you see it in the context here, and we'll see it throughout the remainder of our study of John. Whenever John says the Jews, what he's, it's a technical term as he's using it, referring to the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leaders. It, yes, they were representative of the nation as a whole, but he's speak, speaking particularly of those Jewish authorities. And so, remember, when we very first chapter of John, John 1.11, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And, and he came to the Jews. And, and so the rejection of, of, of his people begins in earnest with these Jewish leaders in this chapter. And, and the point of what we'll see this morning, and, and this is a, a unit here, the whole chapter of chapter 5, and really chapters 5 to 7. But we'll take the story of this healing this morning, and we'll take the remainder of the chapter next week as Jesus begins to teach and explaining and, and, and giving dialogue to what, what has just taken place and explaining these things. But the point here is that you can be very religious, very religious and very good and very uh, active in, in religious observance and still miss the point of it all. Or we could say you, you can be a very good church-going person your whole life and you can bury the lead about who Jesus is and why he came. That's what we see in these verses. That's what these religious leaders are doing. So just kind of four movements that will, will help us walk through this, this, this story and then set us up for next week. The first thing we need to do is we need to take in the whole pitiable scene. We just need to, we need to see it. If you've, if you walked into some new place before, some, particularly if it's a real busy or maybe a strange place you've never been before, and, and you, you just walk into that scene, you walk through the doors, or you enter into this place. I, I was just thinking of when we visited Chad, Africa on a mission trip, and it was our first really uh, cross-cultural experience, and walking into the market there in this third world country, and all of the sights and sounds and smells, it's just sensory overload. I mean, that kind of thing. Just You're just trying to take in the scene. Or you go, I don't advise this, but we happened to be in downtown during Dragon Con one year. The first year we were in, in Georgia. And I had no idea where I was or what was going on. And all of a sudden, there's just people around in these funky costumes. And, but you're just trying to see what, what is happening here. 
And that, that's kind of what we need to do. We just need to, we need to take it in. And so we need to stand and, and look and listen and smell and observe the, the scene here as we can, as much as we can through, through what's written here. And so look at this scene with me. The first thing that we'll notice is there's this facade of festivity. Look, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After this, isn't, isn't very time specific. It doesn't mean immediately after this, but sometime after Jesus' encounter with the official in Galilee that we looked at last week and the healing of his son. So after that, at some point, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for this feast. Now the question is, which feast? Uh, there were several feasts, seven Jewish feasts. And the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> and I don't think you do either. I mean, we're not told. And it, apparently it's not, it's not important. Sometimes we are told what feast Jesus is there for because it's relevant to what he's going to teach or do. But here, apparently it's not. So we're not told. But what we, the reason he tells us that he's there for a feast, and it's probably one of the three Jewish feasts where all of the uh, Jewish males would travel to Jerusalem, so Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles. But the reason John mentions it is simply to show that this third sign, remember that's what's the backbone of the Gospel of John, but this third sign is going to take in take place in Jerusalem at a time when there are a lot of people there. It's going to be in public. The, the city's going to be busy. There's going to be a lot, a lot. The population of the city would be five to ten times larger than normal during one of these feasts. And so you have pilgrims from villages near and far streaming into the city, bringing animals and all of the hubbub of, of feast festival time in Jerusalem. So the city's buzzing with excitement. Feasts were generally festive Events. People are, people were generally happy to be there. They're reconnecting with friends and, and family members and, and they're, and they're eating meals together and drinking and, and singing and, and doing all of this together, catching up with one another. So the city is at its best during these feasts. All, everything gets whitewashed. Everything's cleaned up. The, the temple grounds are spruced up. And so this is it. There's this, there's this festivity that, 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 that Jesus is walking into when he comes into Jerusalem for this feast. But here's the thing about this scene. Beneath that facade of festivity, there there is misery lurking in the shadows. That's the second thing we notice. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. That doesn't sound very miserable. Which in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So, ooh, a city pool. That sounds great. And, you know, hot and dry and go to the pool and let, let the kids play together. Not quite. Not even close. But, but inside the city, just outside of the temple grounds, near the sheep gate, which is where the, as you can imagine, where the animals, sacrificial animals, were brought into the temple. Kind of the back door of the temple. Um, this is, this is a, there's this pool and it's there, it's, it's here that I would say the herding Huddle together. This is not where healthy people go. No, they, they would avoid this place at all costs. This is, this is out of the way. This is kind of the back alley, back entrance to the temple, kind of skid row of Jerusalem. This is, this is the area people deliberately avoid when they're, when they're going in and out of the city and moving around the city. But here you have this pool, this 
pool of Bethesda. And, and surrounding this pool are these covered walkways, these five roofed colonnades, the text says. And you're thinking, I thought, I'm picturing four sides. And so how does this work? Is it Pentagon? No, what it was, there was, a, there was an upper pool and a lower pool. They were right next to each other, but one kind of spilled into the other. And so you had one on each side and you had one in between the two pools. So these five five colonnades. And and again, they provided shelter from the sun and, and from the elements. And and so that's the image. There's a picture, if you can throw it up there, Luke. Uh, there you go. So this is just an image showing. And they found this back in the late 19th century. They actually, through excavation, have found uh, these pools and confirmed their location is right where the text says they were. But it would look something like this, kind of behind uh, the, the, the temple. And so... Verse 3, then, in these, in these roof colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So just, again, try to take in the scene here at this pool. Hundreds of people sitting or lying on the ground in these porticos in various stages of disease. Not a pleasant scene. Kent Hughes, um, he said of this, of this scene, he said, What a pitiful crowd of broken humanity. It does not take much imagination to see these see those withered, wasted bodies, to smell the stench, to see the filth, and to sense the pathos of the old and the young among the impotent, suffering humanity. It had to be a horrible, distressing sight, except for one thing Jesus was there. So these people are there. They have, they have no real medical options to, to, to turn to. They, they're there simply for some temporary relief from the waters of this pool. And they're also there holding out hope that perhaps there could be some miraculous healing that would reverse their condition. And so now look at verse 4 with me. Look at verse 4. John 5, 4. You there? How many of you have John 5, 4 in your Bibles? <laughs> Okay, we know who's using the King James Version. And, uh, or maybe the New King James. I'm not sure if it's, it's in there. It's in the New American Standard. It may be in parentheses. Okay, yeah, so it's set apart. So some of your Bibles may have it, but it may be in brackets or it may be included as a footnote, which it is in my case. So some of you have words like this though, that, that these invalids lay waiting for the moving of water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So some of your Bibles have those words, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, and some of them do not. So why? <laughs> this is strange. Why, why do some Bibles include this and some don't? I'm going to briefly wade into the waters of of this textual issue, pun intended here, and and just we're just going to go quickly because I know it's a question you've got to be kind of wondering. And so, just say this: we we do not have any original copies of Scripture. There are none. We have some very early copies of Scripture, several. And so the Scriptures were first copied by hand. And so the someone took the original scroll of. John's gospel, as John wrote it with his hand, or as his amanuensis perhaps wrote it, but they took that scroll and and somebody wrote an identical scroll of that, and then that happened again and again, and so things were copied and copied and copied and, and duplicated. Now, every once in a while, there were human errors that were made. 
we would say typos today, but that was not whatever they called them then, but errors. And, and, and the copyists went to great lengths to prevent any copying errors. But it happened. Sometimes a letter, would, you'll, know, you'll, you'll see in, in different manuscripts will be different between one manuscript and another. And, and then when that letter was changed, then it got copied again and again and again. So a lot of manuscripts may have that mistake. Uh, sometimes an, an article, you know, the, the, the definite article may be missing or may be added in. And, and then that gets, again, c- continues to be copied. And so I, I don't want to give you the impression that the Bible is full of errors. And, and skeptics, and they're, they're quick to point out to this, that we don't even have original copy of Scripture. So how can you say that it's authoritative and inerrant, that the Bible's full of errors? They love to say the Bible's just full of errors. And that is just fallacious. Um, there, 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 are, there is remarkable consistency among biblical manuscripts. And, and just a tiny fraction of the Bible contains any kind of textual variance. And even those, very, very few of them really have any significance as to the meaning of the passage. It's just, again, a letter, uh, an article, but no, they don't really affect the meaning of the text. And so it's, don't, don't buy into that straw man argument. But this is one of those rare places where you actually have a verse and a half that, that we're not sure if it's supposed to be in there or not. Um, and so how could this happen? Let me, let me just say the oldest manuscripts do not contain this second part of verse 3 and verse 4. But many later manuscripts do. There's a lot of manuscripts, Greek manuscripts that do contain these verses. So what's going on? Well, there's basically two options. Just hang with me for a minute. Two options here. One is that it was part of John's original manuscript, but it was later removed by copyists. And, and those that see this, they would say, well, verse 7 doesn't make sense without this explanation here in verses 3 and 4. And so, so certainly it was part of the original. And, and they would say, but there was a copyist at some later date that, that, and this was a view in the earliest centuries of the church, they would have, and maybe they saw this was too superstitious and so they just took it out. They thought it kind of resembled too closely the pagan understanding of these angels stirring waters. And so they, they removed these verses thinking it couldn't have been original to John. So that's one possibility is that it was removed. Uh, second possibility is that John's gospel, original gospel account did not have these verses, but they were later added in by a copyist. And it, it would be like this, that a copyist might have written a, a note in the margin of the Greek text. So as he's, as he's copying from the, the, the version, the, the correct version, and he's copying it down, he, he notices verse 7, it could use an explanation. And so he writes in the margin, it's called a marginal gloss. I mean, these, this is known to happen. And the, the copyist would write a note in the margin and, and to explain something. How, how this phenomenon, how this gathering of sick people at this pool of Bethesda, how it was understood at the time, why they did it. So he writes a note in the margin. Well, now you got a century or two later, copyists are writing and some continue to write that note in the margin and someone comes along and says, you know what, apparently maybe that was, maybe he forgot to write that. So he's going back and he was kind of wanting that inserted in there. So he just inserts it in the text and then everybody who copies his manuscript then has this this marginal gloss that's written in the text. Are you, have I already lost you? All right. All right. We're going to move on. Either one of those options is possible. And to be honest, it, it, it doesn't matter. I, I always favor older manuscripts. 
that are closer to the original. And so I, I tend to think this is probably not original to the text. But either way, it, it's helpful. It's a helpful marginal note, even if it's just that. And it explains kind of how this, again, the stirring of the waters was understood at the time of Jesus. As we'll, again, it'll make sense when we get to verse 7. But back to the main road. All I want you to do is take in the whole scene. I've probably lost you and you're thinking about textual variants. And, and if you're interested, we can talk later and give you some things to read. But just take it in. Don't rush past it. Get, smell it. See it. Try to get this picture. There's, there's misery. I would just say to us, there's misery lurking in the shadows of the church too. There are sufferers. They may be, they may be hidden from off the beaten path, but they're there. Hiding in plain sight sometimes. Maybe sitting right here among us. There are people in tremendous agony. And for a variety of reasons. There can be hurting, sorrowful, desperate people all around us. And we can be hurting, sorrowful, desperate people. We are, we can be them. And so it, it, it can be messy getting involved. And so we tend to steer clear of, of people like this that are suffering in these ways. But, but what does Jesus do? He goes right to them. That's what we're going to see. He, he makes a beeline right for this place that everybody else is walking around and avoiding. Those suffering in our church, those suffering in our families, those suffering in our community, those suffering in our cities, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We, we need to look around. We need to move toward them just as, as Jesus does. I just say that. Let's move on. Second thing as we take in the scene is to focus your gaze on one powerless sufferer. One powerless sufferer. Verse 5. So we take the, we, we start at the wide angle view of, uh, wide angle lens view of this whole scene and now John just brings the focus in on one particular man who's sitting by the pool in agony. Why? Why does he focus on this one guy? Because that's what Jesus does. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there. So we're not told what his physical ailment was. Verse 7, from verse 7, we probably can assume he was paralyzed or at least he was extremely crippled, unable to move much at all. And so he's, he's in bad shape. Um, and, and this for 38 years. 38 years. And yet this one man attracts the attention of Jesus. I mean, there are times in the Gospels when Jesus will walk and you see a whole city and the inhabitants of it and be moved with compassion for, for just the hordes of people that are before his eyes. There are times when streams of people just come to him and all day long Jesus is healing all those who come to him, like the feeding of the 5,000. And so there, there are those scenes, and yet here, it's one guy that Jesus just zeroes in on this one crippled man, very selective. The, the, it's not that the poor man recognizes Jesus as being someone who might be able to help him and kind of calls him over to him. That's not it at all. Jesus, he doesn't come to Jesus. He doesn't have people bring him to him. He just, Jesus goes to him. And picks him out of the crowd. It's not like the paralytic who his friends brought him to Jesus, dropped him through the hole in the roof and, and set him in front of Jesus. This is not it. It's the opposite of that. Jesus goes just sovereign initiative to this man. And, and what we'll see is 
There's no, there's no hint in the story that this man has more faith than all of the other sick people and disabled people around him. It's not, he made, it, it, there's no indication that he has any faith in Christ. There's no, there's no indication that he ever does believe in Jesus. That's not the point. He, he really doesn't come off, I think, looking very good in John's account of this story, this man. But I just say, by way of application, we are these people. We are this man. And we talked about this at the side by side conference, and if you're reading that book, you know, we are needy people and we are needed people. And that's, I mean, just taking the first and second point together, this is, this is what we see in tension. Yes, we, we need to be like Jesus, moving compassion to those who are suffering, but we also need to realize we are, we are this man. And we are born, particularly born, when we're without Christ, we are these people. We are blind, spiritually, lame, paralyzed, blinded from seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're, 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 we cannot make our way to Jesus on our, on our own. No one can come to the Father unless, unless uh, the Father who sent me draws him. We are, we are, we are, there's none who does good, not one. So this is, this is us. See yourself in the story. Apart from God's moving toward us, we would never have moved toward him on our own. We would have never motioned for Jesus to come our way. He took the initiative. He moved towards us in love. And so this should evoke gratitude for us, for sovereign grace, for mercy. So, so we go from the wide angle. We see the whole scene and take it in. And we, we zero in on this one man. And then, we, then our eyes are changed. And John shifts the camera angle here. And the focus now becomes on our Savior, on Christ. So lift your eyes then to the powerful Savior. And what do we see when we see Jesus? We see a few things about Christ here. We see first his compassion. His compassion. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So Jesus saw the man. That's the first descriptor here. And, and there's no doubt from the context that the, the, the seeing of Jesus here is connected with pity, compassion. Sympathy. I mean, nine times in the Gospels, Jesus sees people and he, he's moved with compassion for people. I think that's what's saying here. But he saw this broken, weakened, crippled body of this man. And, and yet he could also peer deeply into this man. Remember from John chapter 2, verse 25. And so Jesus says he saw him and he, and he knew that he had been there a long time. He knew how long he'd been there. How did he know that? I don't think it's just that somebody passed him a note of paper. Hey, check this guy out over here. He's been, he's, I've heard, I, the word on the street is he's been there 38 years. No, Jesus knows what's in a man. John 2.25, Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. So he sees this man. He, he knows his condition. And seeing and knowing him, he asks this question, do you want to be healed? Is it really necessary to ask that question? It's kind of rhetorical. Uh, is, there, is there any other possible answer than yes? Um, I mean, he's, he's in the condition that he's in for 38 years. He's, he's gotten to the pool, which the whole point of being there is the hope of healing. So why does Jesus ask this? Now, I was amazed at the commentators who kind of want to psychologize this question of Jesus. And there are kinds of interesting 
interpretations and trying to get into the mind of our Lord and of this man and how his answer and I I don't have the the lens to see it that I just want to deal with what's in front of me but it seems to me based upon this and the context of what we've seen in John already the woman at Samaria and the the, the royal official um, there that we saw in Cana last week um, what Jesus is doing I think he's he's setting the man up here. He's asking a question. He's making a statement to draw something out of them. And he's trying to draw out just an open acknowledgement of his misery. And of his inability to do anything about it on his own. I think that's all that Jesus is looking for from this guy. And, and, and in doing that, again, it's, we see the compassion of Jesus. Seeing him, knowing him, speaking to him. Asking him this question. Opening the way for healing. But it's not that Jesus just has warm feelings of compassion for this man. Just uh, His heart just hurts for him. He does. He's moved with compassion. But he also can do something about it. And that's what we see. He's not just full of compassion. He's full of power. And that, So the second thing we see of Jesus here is his cure. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool in the, when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, while I am going, another steps down before me. And so it seems that the rule of the pool was every man for himself. <laughs> and, and, and the belief here, and, and we read this in verses three and four that you may have in front of you. The belief was that the first person and only the first person into the pool after the waters were stirred up or disturbed by this angel that, that that was the only person that would be healed. And so, so it's cutthroat. <laughs> it is. No other, no other sick person is going to stop and try to help him. And there's no well person who's willing to sit there day after day with this man, waiting for the waters to be stirred so he can help him get in quickly. And apparently he can eventually get into the, to the pool, but, but never ahead of others. He's, it takes him a long time to drag himself in. He can't get there fast enough. And that is what he thinks his greatest problem is. And so verse 8. And Jesus said to him. Get up. Take up your bed. And walk. And at once. The man was healed. And he took up his bed. And walked. And John, John lays stress on the fact that he's healed at once. At once. Complete, instantaneous, supernatural healing. At once. It wasn't some gradual, slow, or, or even partial recovery. You know, his, his nerve damage, whatever, whatever caused this condition in the original, in the original, or the, whatever disease he had, it was healed instantly. And those muscles that he hadn't used for 38 years that were all atrophied and, and knotted up, they are immediately loosened. And the joints are, that haven't been, haven't been worked out and have just been frozen in place, they're, they're, they're instantly working perfectly. So he can stand up, pick up his mat, roll it up, put it on his shoulder, and walk instantly, at once, the text says. I had a friend in High school named Tress Sansom, Tress Sansom, and he was um, he was this 
he was a couple years older than I, and he was one of these guys you just kind of looked up to. I was probably a freshman, sophomore in high school, and he was in a church youth group. His mom was the secretary of the church, and but he was just this athlete, strong, good-looking, athletic uh, guy, likable guy, just funny and witty, and so he just liked to be around this guy, kind of this role model. Well, he, as, a, as he got later in high school, his life was kind of just not not being very wise, not walking with the Lord. And and so he was over at his girlfriend's house and had a swimming pool in her backyard. And they were swimming uh, one evening and he was showing off for her and did the flying squirrel dive. And, and, and he went straight, hit the bottom of the pool and instantly paralyzed. He's laying on the bottom of the pool. She, she thought he was joking, realized he wasn't, dives down, brings him back up. And he's got nothing, nothing. Life just instantly changed. It's quadriplegic to the day. And um, God has used this in his life. And he will, he'll give, he gives thanks for that diving incident because he saw the trajectory his life was on. And God's completely set him on a course. He's just a faithful, godly man. He's married now, has two kids and and uh, so, great end of the story. But I, I was just thinking of, here's Tress. He's been in a wheelchair now for 23 years. And, and but for, for if God were to heal that, if he were to repair that nerve damage and, 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 and give him feeling again in his limbs, even then, it would, it would take months, if not years, to be able to walk again. Rehab and physical therapy and all that would be required Unless the Lord did something just like we saw here. But but here, this man, after 38 years, just instantly stands, walks. This is just incredible. And so Jesus' curie, it shows his power. It shows his authority, as Pat was talking about. His authority over every single cell, every single molecule that exists in creation. In, the, in this man's body, Jesus has power over it. And he immediately restores his body. So, so we see his cure. The third thing we see of Jesus is his caution. And we're going to jump down to verse 14 with me. I'm going to take it out of order and, and just to, to pick it up here in this point in the sermon. So this man, he walks away after being healed by Jesus with his mat and toe. Jesus also just kind of disappears into the crowd with his disciples. But verse 14, afterward, now we're not sure how much afterward, if it was later that day or the next day or the next week, but sometime afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, in the temple precincts, and said to him, See, you are well. And then he said, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So he's in, this man's in the temple precincts. Was he there to give a thank offering to God? We, we don't know. We're not told why he's there. But we're told that Jesus, again, he kind of seeks him out. He finds this man and he says to them. And, and when he finds him, he connects his healing. See, you are well. He connects his healing to his need for change. Sin no more. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Again, there's there's so many interpretive issues in this text, and I was saying to the elders earlier, I have like you don't you can't see my notes, but I got all these red boxes in here. I'm like, do I have time to go there? Do I have time? Uh, I don't know. They're in my notes. If you got questions later, and see me. But there are some. This is one of those places. There are some that see 
what, what John is saying is that his, his disease is the result of some specific sin that would have happened over 38 years ago. And that was why he was in that condition, because of some sin. So Jesus is saying, don't you ever sin like that again, or it's going to be worse next time. I don't know what worse would be for this man, blindness or, 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 or death or what it would be, but you're, you're going to be in a worse condition. Now, I just say, we need to be very careful. We should not ever insinuate to sick people that, that all sin is caused by, all sickness is caused by sin. Job's friends did this, and they don't come off looking too good in God's estimation. Now, it's not to say that there isn't some sickness and physical suffering that is connected to sin, specific sin. Sometimes it's the natural consequences of our sin. Sometimes it's divine discipline. I mean, about the Lord's table. We talk about this in communion sometimes. And because of the way they treated the table, um, Paul says, you know, for, this is some of the reasons some of you are sick and dying because of the way you've sinned in the church and the assembly. How are you treating the Lord's table? Uh, so that that's possible, and and that may this may be indicating that this man's sin had some, something directly to do with the sickness, and that's maybe why Jesus picked him and not one of the other sick people out of the crowd, is so he could get to this point. I, I don't think that that's the case. The the present tense of this of Jesus' command here, sin no more. This is a present tense verb, and and. I don't think he's talking about something that happened over 38 years ago. So it, it, you could translate it this. No longer continue to sin. No longer continue to sin. Don't continue in your present state of being unreconciled to God. Otherwise, there is something in store that, that's far worse than any physical disease. I think the, something far worse is eternal punishment. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. I just... God... God allows physical suffering and other kinds of, of affliction into our lives to drive us to himself. He brings it into our lives at times. There, maybe you're here this morning, and I just say to you, if you're without Christ, there's something worse than even what you're going through now. If you don't turn to Christ and trust him, be reconciled to him, I'm not trying to be morbid and scare you, but I'm, I'm, this is a caution. It's an appeal and out of motivated by nothing but love. Let this be a, a warning to you and, and let it be something that God uses to move your heart towards Him, to trust in Him, to turn to Christ. This is what He wanted of this man. So He gives this caution to this man. Last movement. I'm going to have to hit the gas here. The last thing I want us to see about this whole scene is that, that we should be troubled, be troubled, just shouldn't sit well by this perverted system that we see here. We, we get to see now how very religious people can bury the lead. And that's that's the first thing in verse nine and ten. We'll see how a perverted system, it, it majors on the minors. It majors on the minors. Verse 9, the end of verse 9. Now that day, the day that Jesus healed this man, that day was the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Now that's it's not an oversight on Jesus' part. It's not like he lost track of time and I don't even know what day it is anymore. We have those weeks and it feels like a, you know, it feels like it's Saturday, but it's actually just Friday. And so Jesus didn't lose track of time. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly when he's doing it. But it's the Sabbath. So verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed. Praise God. 
It's a miracle. 38 years and you can walk. Glory to God. Show us. Take us to this man and, and who healed you. And we want to worship him. We want to trust him. Now what we see. They don't even say, we don't believe you. There's no way that you were healed. This is, this is a fake. You think we're, you think we're stupid? People don't get healed like that. It's not possible. They don't, they're not even skeptics. What do they say? Verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. And it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. They're blind. They completely miss what God is doing right in front of their eyes. Instead, they're all worked up about the violation of one of their petty little rules. Now, the Sabbath is not a petty little rule. That's God's law. His law is holy and good and just. It's part of the Ten Commandments. But like so much of God's law, what they did was they superimposed all of these these other traditions and rules and standards over the top of God's law and distorted it really and, and made it this heavy yoke for the people. Made it so complicated. There's no greater example of this than what they did with all of their ridiculous laws related to the Sabbath. It was, it's just crazy. The intention of God's Sabbath law was, was, was to give a break from work, the normal customary employment, so the farmer didn't harvest, didn't, didn't, didn't sow on, on Sabbath. The carpenter didn't go into the shop and make chairs and tables on the Sabbath. He would take a break from that work, focus on the Lord and give thanks to Him for His deliverance. But the Jewish leaders made it so complicated. And so over the years, Jewish rabbis codify these 39 different divisions of Sabbath law. They called it the, it's part of the Mishnah, which is rabbinic teachings. And, and, and so there were all of these rules, rule after rule that were just layered over and their, their intention was to protect the Sabbath. So they wanted to make sure that the, the God's law was, there was a hedge around it. So they built up all of these other laws. So to make sure that there wouldn't be a chance that you could violate that law of the Sabbath. And, but what happened over time, these rules that were man-made, they began, became elevated to the same place of Scripture, viewed with the same authority. And, and just some of the examples, real quick. Is, I, I'm taking these from Kent Hughes' commentary on John here, but one of, one of the laws was that looking into a mirror was forbidden on the Sabbath. Because if you look into a mirror on the Sabbath, you see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out, and that would be work. I'm not making this up. False teeth were forbidden. I can't even imagine what false teeth were like in those days. But um, if they fall out, though, you, you would have to pick them up, and that would be doing work. So you can't wear false teeth. You couldn't carry a handkerchief or some kind of cloth like that on the Sabbath, but you could wear one. So they had that distinction. So if you're upstairs in your home and you want to go downstairs, you want to carry your handkerchief downstairs, you can't do that. So you have to tie it around your neck, wear it downstairs, then take it off, and you can use it down there. See how ridiculous this is. That you, you, could, you could spit, but you had to be very careful where you spit in the ground. Because if you spit on the dirt and then you scuff it with your, handle, your, your sandal, then you're actually cultivating the soil so you're working, you're farming. And so your spirituality, your standing before God, is determined based upon where you spit. I'm not going to model this, though. If you're sitting on the front row, you might get this modeled. I don't know. Um, 
And so, so these laws, are, they became ridiculous. All these regulations. But you set that aside. Again, even with that, for the first time in 38 years, this man is walking. And then he hears a voice saying, Hey, what are you doing with your bed? Don't you know that's illegal? You know how many laws you're breaking by carrying that mat? You can't carry anything on the Sabbath. They basically say, we don't, we don't care about your medical history. What's that to us? Fact is, you're carrying your bed on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law, and you're in big trouble. I mean, this is absurd. These are hard-hearted people. But this is how works-based, perverted religion works. It always majors on the minors. It always elevates man-made rules and traditions and restrictions and preferences to the place of God's law. It's list-making religion. It's list-giving religion. That's what becomes the, the, the human traditions, human expectations, human preferences. They slowly over time get elevated and to the place where we can hardly distinguish between what God has said and what we, what we like, what we prefer. And we have, we have our own version. I'm not trying to say we're all, we're all there. I'm saying we, we, we contend towards this. I'll say more about this at the end if I have time. It's one of those red blocks. Um, but in the process, they miss out what God is doing right in front of our eyes, in their eyes. And we can do that too. God can be at work and we can be so bound and tied up in knots over our preferences, over our traditions, that we can, we can just miss what God is doing right in front of us. So this perverted system, it majors on minors. It also, it lives to preserve power. Verse 11, but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So he said, what are you doing carrying this? Don't you know this is illegal? Well, that man who healed me, he said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they don't care about the healing. All they, all they're going to see, all they want to know is who said this to you? Who said that? Who said you could take up your bed and walk? They experienced no joy over his healing. Verse 12, they asked him, who is this man that, who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. So, they want to know who's challenging their authority, their religious position. We make the rules. We decide what you can and can't do. Who does this man think he is saying that you can take up your mat and walk on the Sabbath. So, so, but this is, this is how legalism, how, how this kind of religious, this kind of perverted religion it works. It's all about preserving power. Man-made, man-fought power. Third, a perverted system wars against the working of God. It wars against the working of God. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus. Who, this is again after Jesus finds him in the temple. And so he says, sin no more. So the next verse, verse 15. The man went away then from that encounter with Jesus. Found the Jewish leaders. And told them that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now again, there's a red block here. I do not know how to take this verse. I don't know how to take this guy, to be honest. I'm not, personally, I'm not that impressed with this man. I'm not sure much has changed for him. 
I kind of view him pretty pessimistically. Now, that may be because of what I had for dinner last night. I don't know. But um, I know there's a way to look at him where you, he looks more char- you can look at him more charitably. But is he tattling on Jesus here? Is he pointing to Jesus, pointing these religious leaders to Jesus? This is the man. This is the Messiah. This is the one. I don't know. I don't know that we're told and I don't know we can be certain. But verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Doing, yeah, these things on the Sabbath. They don't, they don't care about the things that Jesus is doing. They don't see what he's doing. They don't see God at work and, and believe in him. They're, all they care about is that Jesus is doing these things on the Sabbath. And, and so, so they're, they, they're, they're at war against what God is doing, what God is working right in front of their eyes. Well, the ball is teed up for Jesus here at, at the end of this account, verse 16. He, he, I would say Jesus is, he's, it's all a setup. He's arranged all the pieces on the board so he can make his next move here. Don't think that Jesus is the victim of circumstances here. No, he, he's in charge of this, everything that's happening here. He's moving it around. The, the, they think, the religious leaders think the issue is the Sabbath. And so Jesus is going to start there, but he's not going to linger there. He's going to go quickly to the real issue. And next week we're going to see the real issue as Jesus, he, he begins to explain uh, this relationship that he has with the Father and how the scriptures, how the scriptures bear witness to Jesus and what he's doing. So it's going to be good. Christ has them right where he wants them. But I go back to kind of the, the, the idea that I want you to see from this text. And it's this, is that it's possible to be very religious and still miss the point of it all. And, and I, I say that does have bearing on us. That, that, that Do you tend toward this kind of religion? Does this, is it, you kind of gravitate that way. Toward, towards legalism, we would say. Towards externalism, making it... You know, majoring on the minors, that, that kind of religion. Is that how you tend to move? I'm going to ask just a few questions and we'll, this will be how we'll close. A few questions to kind of smoke out what Howard, I love, I've, I've, maybe other people said this, but I've heard him say this many times, the, the little Pharisee that lives inside all of us. So we're going to kind of smoke him out a little bit this morning. Not to, not to cause us to despair, but but we we need to see this about ourselves. So just some questions to kind of help see if this is how you tend to think and, and live. And we all do, we all do. So don't think like no, I'm I'm good. Uh, you just you're maybe blind, more blind than you realize. First question: Do you love filling in the gaps for other people when the scriptures don't give detail regarding certain Christian behaviors? There's what God says, but you, there's then there's other things that we're not sure. But you love. Just marching in and saying, no, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to live. This is how you need to act. This is what kind of music you need to listen. This is what you can do. This is what you can't do. This is how you need to dress. This is how you need to educate your kids. This is how you need to do this. And so you love to march in there. And you do it often. Maybe without even realizing it. Do you find yourself, because of your commitment to your preferences, often separating from other believers who've committed no sin before God, but they have violated your own conscience? So you're constantly pulling away from brothers and sisters in Christ because it makes you so uncomfortable that they do things differently than you do. 
Are you known by people, by your neighbors, by your family members, by co-workers, by classmates? Are you known by people for what you're against rather than who you love and who you serve? What does your Facebook wall say? What does your Twitter feed or your Instagram, whatever social media you use or phone tree? I don't know for some of you that aren't on computers. I don't know. However you communicate with people, what does it say about you? Do you keep doing things that have long since lost their meaning in your life simply because you're afraid that to do otherwise would be wrong? Do you have serious struggles with assurance of salvation because you think that your salvation somehow depends upon how good you are at any given time? Do you live a secret life, a double life, one that is much different from the shell of kind of religious piety that everyone else sees? Inside or privately, you struggle with tremendous sin, but you you, you will not admit it. You will not confess it to others or let people see it, your struggles. Do you find it difficult to fellowship with other Christians, especially those who are different than you? If people's expressions of reverence and worship look different than yours or don't fit your standard, do you tend to question their devotion to God? Are you generally more concerned about what people think than what God thinks? And then last, can you quickly point out the faults of others in their doctrine, in their life, and yet, you really have trouble naming your own. If I said, 30 seconds, tell me what your greatest three struggles are, you wouldn't have a thing to say. You would have to think about that. Well, I would say this again. We're not, none of us are above acting like this and living like this. The Apostle Peter was not. I mean, Paul kind of lit into Peter in Galatians chapter 2. This duplicity that Peter was exhibiting, his conduct that was out of step with the gospel, this hypocrisy. So we can all we can all fall into this. But but don't this again, I don't I don't want you to say, Oh man, I was like pegged on every one of those. Well you know, we're not beyond the reach of the gospel and the transforming power of the gospel to change us and to set us free from this system of this perverted system of religion that we can so easily f- fall back into. We, we, we don't have to live like that. God can, God can change the answers to those questions for our lives by, by the transforming power of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for, thank you that you, you've given us this picture of the, the compassion and the power and the caution of Jesus here in this, this, this episode. And thank you that you've given us a picture of how how wrong religion can be when it becomes more focused upon our performance than upon the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so God help us as a church not ever to lose that, not ever to make not ever to make the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave us a list of rules that whoever obeys them perfectly shall not perish but have eternal life, but the gospel is God so loved the world that he sent his only son And whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. May that be the the leading edge of this church. May that affect how we relate to one another in this body, how we fellowship together. May that affect how we witness out to those outside of this body, to those who don't know Christ. Our hearts would be moved with compassion for those who need the mercy that we we enjoy. 
God so worked that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.